Hi, I'm Stefan. I'm the CMO and uh, co-founder of Dream Data. I'll be joining Christian and Søren on the Messy Growth Show, and we will be talking about repeatable growth, how to build an engine, how to make sure that it works, that you can track it and uh, get to know what works in the future. And uh, hopefully you'll be inspired by this and uh, can go on and do better in your own. Welcome to the Messy Growth Show, where we talk to founders and marketeers of software and manufacturing companies about their path to growth and challenge the conventional beliefs of what works and what does not to help you untangle the path to your growth. Your host on this podcast is Christian Jorgensen, and I am Soren Hansen. So let's get started with today's guest on the Messy Growth Show. So welcome to the show, Stephen. And thank you very much. Take, and taking the time to join us here on the Messy Growth Show. Before we start, perhaps you could give us, uh, you're a CMO at Dream Data right now, but give us an introduction of yourself and a short description of your journey to where you are now as founder and CMO of Dream Data. I'm happy to. Uh, I've been working in, in B2B companies in marketing, growth, stuff-related roles ever since I graduated the Copenhagen Business School back in 2000. And so it's a, it's been some years now, and all those companies has always been digital or like software or stuff like that. So or in my opinions, as you will hear today, is very much shaped by that it's, it's always been digital B2B companies. And what I say might not be true for all businesses, but I've at least now I've told you that that's how I'm I'm colored in my opinion. Uh, started out with a, like an extremely scrappy startup that failed, but learned a lot about online marketing, SEO, et cetera, when I was there want to and it's now Upwork which I think that's where I met yeah. Christian for the very first the time the Elance days right yeah, yeah. Uh, so I my story with Elance was that I read the, the four hour work week book started experimenting with these online freelancers and then as they were opening an office here in Europe they asked whether I maybe might be interested in joining that, that team and uh, having not made any money for the first one or two years after graduating <laughs> I thought okay <laughs> Let's get some salary, and there that was that was nice. That's good. And then uh, from uh, from Upwork, I moved on to Airtime, where I was the head of marketing for three and a half years, and we went through this kind of from less than twenty to more than a hundred employees, and uh, spending zero on ads to spending hundreds of thousands, oh, somewhere around hundred thousand dollars per month on ads or something like that. So in that process, you start wondering. Is this actually a good idea or is it not a good idea to spend all this money on advertising? The first money you put in, you have a pretty good causality understanding. I did this, this happened, but the last 10, 20,000 you put in, you're a little more. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and then at the, the end of my tenure there, I happened to get introduced to what then became my two co-founders, uh, Lars and Ole. The, that claimed they had a somewhat of an, a solution to these attribution questions that marketers had in, in B2B companies. I saw a super ugly prototype, but it could somewhat answer the questions I had been asking myself for a long time. Like, how long does it take from when we see a customer, the first, like a person the first time before they become a customer? Which are the good ads? Which are the good pieces of content? Are we doing a good or bad job in marketing? And I decided that if I'm ever going to be like a full-time entrepreneur, I said, okay, maybe now is the chance because there's two super smart technical people that have a solution to a problem, which I know to be very real. Mm. And here we are like four years later, we've now just raised this uh, Series A round and uh, have a pretty solid B2B uh, go-to-market analysis, B2B fusion uh, product with customers and yeah, all over the world. Now. Nice. Congrats on the funding round. That's always a bit of a, a tough journey to get on. <laughs> it was a historically bad timing of raising the <laughs> money as we, we started by beginning of Q2 last year and everybody was, I think the, even the VCs will agree now, there was a bit of a panic time. Nobody wanted to move on anything. So it took all of the summer to get through, but <laughs> now we're on the other side and have to start delivering on the, the promises we've yeah. made. In your view, Stefan, what does a yeah. B2B uh, growth engine look like? What does it consist of? Yeah. 
So, yeah, so first of all, I've, I've mainly just tried this space, which is from a few employees up to like 100, 200 employees. So if you're north of that amount of employees, then I don't know so much about that space. But what I've tried sometimes now is to to start somewhat from scratch and then build something up to at least scale-up stage. Uh, when I look backwards, uh, particularly at Dream Data, actually one of the most important things we've done has actually been, you can say it's not a per se an activity, but it has been really to, to spend time on defining who's our ideal customers, who's uh, the antithesis to our ideal customers. Because by, by doing so, uh, all the other choices that you're going to make afterwards is becoming a lot easier. So for example, we've defined it as B2B SaaS companies between, let's say, from the lowest end 50 employees up to somewhere around 2,000 employees, and pre predominantly the marketers within these companies. And once you've really decided upon this, then deciding on all the, the growth experiments, tests, marketing stuff, becomes a lot easier because you can you can match the idea up against would people from these companies actually find this attractive? Would they be present at this physical event? Would they be writing these things on Google? Where are they present, etc.? So I, I've really seen that how that have not only just aligned how we do marketing, but the, the whole company that marketing knows who to attract. Salespeople are only allowed only allowed to work on accounts that look like the ideal customers. Product only builds for this type of persona. So over time, it helps set a direction for, for the company. Some of the kind of my inspiration for this comes from Seth Godin, which is kind of a, an old, old school marketer who, who had a book called Tribes, which I think works uh, really well here as a, as a metaphor for why you need an ideal customer profile. Because in most company, uh, except if you're like Coca-Cola or IBM, you can't advertise to the whole world. You need to kind of spend the few money you have available just being super present in front of your persona, your ideal customer. So with a very narrow budget, if you know, if we use surfers as an example here, like people who would surf the water, then like there's a few spots around the world. There's probably a few books. There's probably some influences. There's a few tournaments, maybe a few events. And if you're just present at these places, you would actually look like a pretty big surf brand. And by defining exactly who we're going for, I would think that would, that would, that's the fundamental for me. Don't be afraid of actually saying, we can't sell to these guys. We can't sell to these guys. It hurts. It I know it's it's really it's, painful to say, I'm not going to. There's an acronym for that. It's called FOMO. And it's it can <laughs> yeah. bring cold sweat on your sure. forehead. But yeah. <clears throat> Steph, no, I was just curious because, you know, this is a very fundamental problem for pretty much any client I work with. The, the, figuring out who's their ideal customer. And then this FOMO comes up and like, you know, yeah, we should not sell to these guys over here. And they're yeah. pretty much in panic about that every time. How did you get, without us going complete ICP, focus on this, but how did you, with you guys starting with zero customers and then growing, how did you figure out that it was these B2B SaaS companies, 50 to 2,000 employees, and not some manufacturing companies or whatever stuff. I think one of the components when you're in a, in a subscription business, then you who's most likely to be happy customers and renew their contracts, that's a super important thing. So like, you don't want your salespeople just to bring in accounts that will churn after the first year's contract. So we... For B2B SaaS companies particularly, they, they do a heavy investment in marketing online. Their sales teams typically use inside sales tools like CRM, calling software, email software, etc. And they also deliver their product digitally. So kind of you have a, we work with digital touches to kind of explain what's the customer journey. So we needed to find somebody who would generate a lot of digital touches of their customer journeys and who would be tech savvy, open also have a good deal of money available. <laughs> they used to have that uh, <laughs> last year, and let, but let's see this year. So there was kind of these fundamentals for the product to work well. We need a lot of digital reflections. We need tech-savvy people. We need people who are likely to be happy customers as well, because if they're not happy customers, then we'll have a lot of churn, and then we can't raise money afterwards either. 
so there, there was kind of there's a few things that led us on the path to to this but it is extremely hard sometimes if there's a customer who seems like they want to buy and you don't have a lot of customers so sometimes you shouldn't take it so other times you need to be practical and just you know get that deal <laughs> signed and then and may i just add it, but uh, one last and then to go back to uh, what a growth ain't like and uh, if if we if we take in different customers, not only will they, they might churn, they might not, but at the end when they are customers yeah. and we start taking feedback for product development and product improvement, then we skew the whole product by taking in feedback from not ideal customer profiles, and that can be expensive. Because it might the product might end yeah. up being just as good and just as bad for everyone instead of being superior for a specific segment where word of mouth and raving reviews will come from. So I think also where we invest in the future and how our product looks is hugely depending on us having a great ICP. Yeah. So, I, Stefan, I let's get back to... Uh, Visually, what what yeah, does a growth really consist of in your mind in terms of <laughs> what you created at the first stages up to up until a point in uh, as, as CMO? Yeah, the way I, I I would always approach building growth engine will be to to think about what would be a typical buyer's journey here for those that would be in market right now. It's not the you know I think you typically say one two three percent of people of your addressable market is buying right now, so it's not it's not the whole market you should start out with. I would start to try to grasp the people that are showing intent somewhere on the internet for buying. So the, like old school, you would call it bottom funnel. So I would say review platforms if you've made your way all the way down to a category where you read reviews about certain pieces of software then you're quite far in making a decision uh you know create a profile on these platforms start collecting reviews there if you have any customers uh, there's the search engines uh both paid and organically think through kind of what what are people particularly writing when they're the intent the intention for acquiring a product like yours uh, uh, would appear um, and start coloring those like like. there's no doubt in your mind that if people are searching for this then they're looking for something like what you do and that is kind of an engine you always needs running for us particularly when we make software there's a lot of these things we integrate with that have marketplaces for example HubSpot has a marketplace where you can click marketing and then analytics if HubSpot users is messing around in there, obviously it's good for us to have a, a nice and shiny profile because they're quite far again in, in decision-making. I don't know if you guys can think of other places you'd express uh, uh, strong in-market intent, but that I would look through kind of what is my industry? How do How is intention to buy expressed right now? That is that kind of the this first engine I want to want to get running start with the low-hanging fruits harvest those yeah exactly and then from there on it's very much uh, i think you have to be very experimental because it's different from company to company which tactics work even though some company is performing some tactic and it works for them perhaps it doesn't work for you perhaps you're worse at executing it it can be it, <laughs> it can be lots of things but now, now that I think about it, even before you start pulling in traffic uh, to your website, you need a website. <laughs> you need to start, you need to make sure that when people arrive to your website, that they actually can understand what is it that you do, well, why is it valuable, yep. what are the features. <laughs> so I had this case when we just started out, the three of us, there was barely a website. And I kind of just had to kind of interview our CTO to understand why. What is it we do? What is the technology? Why is this valuable, etc.? So you need to make sure that whatever, wherever you funnel people, there's actually some good explanations of how does your thing uh, work. True, and does that like align with, with the pains that they have your your buyers? Do they get why this is a problem? And can we 
communicate that in a way so they're like, oh yeah, this I want to read more about and eventually get on a trial or demo call with you guys, right? Like really understanding that, it, again, back to the ICP, understanding their language, their pains, uh, their worldview, uh, and also just their buying process. That's something Sean and I have been talking about a lot uh, quite lately, actually, more with the enterprise space that, you know, Maybe they will not, like a big enterprise, will not just sign up for a trial because there's like a CFO involved, the legal department, whatever in their decision process. And if you don't understand that, you're just going to fail. Pains and ICP, because an ICP is an account, it's an organization, but inside that organization, we have personas. So then you have formal and informal decision makers. And so they... There, there are different owners of different pains that we need to understand. Yeah. The buyer's journey is really a great tool that you mentioned, Stefan, because it helps us understand what loops a client needs to go through, what information they need, the requirements, and everything before they are able to buy. And those are great. If, if you have that, it becomes... Just like you said about the ICP, it becomes fairly easy to create content and understand what content to create. I think once you get to a certain deal size, people have to talk with people, people have to get approvals. So you should be thinking through, after I've convinced my, like the first person I speak to, what, who are the, the people he or she needs to go through? Is it data security? Is it the CFO? Who is it? And then I like, ideally I would start developing content that addresses the concerns of these, like you can say second tier stakeholders that yeah. you also need to, to convince. Yeah. If we get back to kind of the, the pillars, <laughs> then we've done a lot of, uh, paid advertisement where we try to step a little bit outside those like crystal clear <laughs> intentions. I think nowadays I'm really a big fan of, um, LinkedIn, and they have a, something, a function called matched audiences in their advertisement uh, platform, where you can actually upload lists of exactly the companies you want to run your ads uh, towards. So if you have a well-defined ICP and you know people in these companies have these problems, then I think it's a great way to, to spend some advertisement money. Forgetting about the tracking element of it, as long as I know it's these people in in this company, in this function, yes. it cannot be all bad that they start to be exposed for uh, our brand. Then obviously there's the second their discipline is kind of, can we track it afterwards? But it has to start with the right people and the right message. And then next step is then to, to try to quantify it through some kind of tracking. I would say, uh, oh yeah, growth engine, um, retargeting, like make, make sure like the people that are easiest in this world to sell to is people who've been on your website before. And that I would set up, uh, first of all, install the tracking cookie from any kind of ad network. So it at least allows you the opportunity to get back to these people at some point if you want. It sounds like you've done that before. Oh, if I could scale retargeting to infinity, it would make a billion dollars. I mean, it's people that have shown in some interest, especially if you filter your retargeting audience a little bit based on not just yeah. like a one second visit or whatever, some crap traffic of a kid yeah. that accidentally clicked your YouTube yes. uh, video <laughs> because they were yeah. watching something. Uh, but yeah, then it's definitely a good channel. Uh, we put out some benchmarks in the summer about the average customer journeys that we could see with our clients. And from the first touch until a deal was one, was a average journey was 192 days. So like more than six months. Wow. And it had an average of uh, 31 sessions uh, with the company as well. And I think these components just highlights that you're not done once you get the first click in from some company you need to... <laughs> Like continuously bring them back to your website, continuously yeah. inspire them with with content. You have to kind of just be like always on producing great stuff that can help help support the salespeople all the way through. True. If you have a and big enough probably... uh, pipeline of people, you can basically set up retargeting uh, campaigns based on where they are in your funnel stages. So if they yeah. like, this is their next step. Like you know, the CFO needs to approve on this then you can basically run 
ads, nurturing campaigns, whatever stuff based on that, like get the calculator for your CFO, whatever, just to, you know, uh, <laughs> put it out on yeah. YouTube, Meta, whatever, LinkedIn. Been doing that quite successfully. It's a bit overseen uh, little trick, but you need to have a quite big volume of people coming in because you need to have enough for making these custom audiences or similar yeah. on the different platforms. Yeah, we can then we can drill a little bit more into the website as well. Just uh, kind of typically, you can you can think about the website as kind of a, a fishing boat for your activities. So you want to be able to catch as much of the attention that you're giving as, as totally possible. And um, like when I started working at uh, at Airtame, they, they, they just had buy this product as the single conversion that they had on their website. So buy our product or leave the website. And that would like 0.3% of the visitors would do that. But we then with little by little started introducing like these micro conversion opportunities. Chat with us, I think 1% chatted with us. We had this like pop up one back when they were a thing, uh, where one to two percent also submitted to to sign up to the news. We introduced a get a demo button, which today is standard everywhere, but that caught 0.3 percent as well. So suddenly, once you start to to have all these micro conversions, then when you put in a hundred or a thousand or whatever you put into your website, you get a much you get much more value out of the website. And yeah, maybe the first fundamental thing is just to install this advertising cookie. So at least you harvest the data that you can then repurpose. And <laughs> I used to have a bad habit of whenever I saw a new company run TV ads, I would go into their websites to see <laughs> have they installed the pixels from other <laughs> places. Because I just knew if they hadn't, they're just like throwing money completely out of the window. That's a fun little little to thing to do. Yeah. But this is this is really key and it's not necessarily gimmick or trick marketing it's a matter of understanding what would create the biggest value for your visitor at this stage of their journey so if they're trying to understand their own problem a little better or if they're since they might not buy the service or the product we sell very often they might need some guidance in terms of how to look at this product. What does it need to do to help me solve these problems? So define and test out what kind of uh, of insight and content people will be willing to give their name and email address for so you get the first micro-conversions and can start supporting them on yeah. their journey. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, if we get back to the kind of the growth engine, uh, like for me, fundamentally, it's more like a mindset uh, thing rather than it's, uh, you, you said, gimmick or like tactic. And what I mean by that is that I view almost any marketing as, as some kind of an experiment. Like you have an idea, you try it out, you see kind of what is the return of it. Did it work? Did it not work? Um, if you're happy about what you saw in the first round, then you try to put in a little bit more effort, a little bit more money or resources into the idea. Um, if it still works, then you just keep adding resources to it because it's uh, you don't have to find 800 things that works. <laughs> you just have to find one, two, three, attack six that work. And then you have to sustain and scale, scale these activities. If you do it by the book in those old growth hacking books, then you would once a month, once a week, once a quarter or something like that. Your, you and your team would write down what are all the ideas we have to things we could do right now. And then ideally you also score them on like, is it expensive? Is it hard to do? What does our gut feeling say? What impact? I don't want to add too many because then it becomes too complex. But then you would actually, you would grab those things that would be easy to do and expect to have some kind of impact quite, uh, quite effective. And then like little by little, you start carrying them out, see if they work, if they don't work. And then you shouldn't jump to new ideas once you find something that works. Then you should actually be looking to repeating these things. Can we scale it? Can we, you know, can we hire somebody just to own this thing? Because it clearly works. The reason why I'm, why I'm emphasizing this is as I see these things as when something works, that is what is going to fund the next round of experiments for you. Because we're in this world to produce sales for our company, produce revenue. So 
Yeah. Produce revenue out of what we do, and then kind of we can't afford to do the next round of experiments that uh, that we do. It's a very good point. What the like right? going deep? Once you find something that actually works, then go deep on it because it's a pattern that I've seen happen a few times that people then at some point they just go into squirrel mode and they see some new shiny interesting object and they go for that instead like hey let's do tiktok ads or let's do you know whatever stuff and then they leave behind these things that were actually on a path to really improve the business and sales and so yeah being a little bit uh, narrow focused um, i think it's super important i think the next thing i just uh, realized is that kind of when I say what works, ideally that means you make money. Yes. At least it produces proxies of what normally leads uh, to money. For me, it's hard to not think about producing revenue with marketing, but some still like have been in, in companies where the silos have been so big between marketing and sales that they're not even being asked how many of those marketing leads did we sell to or... Like how much money did we make from this this campaign? Oh. And I think if you want to be successful and appreciated as a marketer or a growth person in a B2B company, at least you start by coming up with the narrative. <laughs> We're doing these things so we get more leads, so the salespeople are busy and can sell stuff. And then you start telling this to the CFO or the CEO to explain them, we are doing these things because we want to sell more. And then the next component is you start to gather evidence, ideally hardcore uh, quantifiable evidence, but you might just have to start with qualitative stuff like screenshots or stuff like this. Hey, this guy mentioned us, he saw our ad here, um, stuff like that. But you need to produce revenue that the scorecard here is the sales team selling something. It's not that we got another lead or we made an awesome campaign or people engaged with us. It's the company that needs to sell more. Marketing needs to have a revenue goal. When I was taking my education at Copenhagen Business School, the narrative at that point was marketing doesn't have a seat at the management table because they cannot show their results. And meaning results, meaning sales. And so from, from that point on, I always just been like, you know, I need to show my results. No matter if they complete yeah. shit or what, uh, or great, fine. But then we can talk about it. And it also stresses the marketing team to deliver good leads for the sales team because if they just fill up the pipeline with 500 poor leads, then sales are not yeah. going to actually close any deals. And then the whole organization is just, is just going to struggle. Right? You know, another growth trick. This it's, And it's not like rocket science, but... You know, making sure that the sales and marketing team feels like part of the same uh, process. Like, uh, like you know, make sure that they sit in the same room. So when a lead comes in and it gets assigned to the salesperson, they can hear the salesperson saying, this is a fucking waste of time if I take this call. Sure. Because then you shouldn't bring in more of these leads. That is a waste of time. Uh, like if you use the metaphor, like if you would, Every lead, if you think about presenting that physically to the salesperson, like, here's my mom. She wants to buy this very complex data product. Like, have a two-hour call with her to see if you can sell to her. (laughs) Then you'll probably stop bringing in these kinds of leads because it doesn't match who the salespeople should be spending their time on. One of my clients, uh, he, he was sitting 15 meters away from the sales team, but just decided to move right over and sit, sit right in the middle of them just to get those sites. Uh, so that will, that will be a, just a stupidly simple change, but it will be a game changer for them. Uh, yeah, but I think the responsibility is on both sides. So like if yeah. salespeople feel that leads are bad, then walk into the marketing team's room, like physically or digitally, mm-hmm. and say, these are not good leads. I like to talk to these kinds of leads or if you're unsure in marketing what a good lead is, then walk into the sales room <laughs> and ask them True. who are the best leads, uh, who would you like to have more to, to talk And still to. keeping the ICP in mind. Hopefully that uh, if it, that if that is crystal clear for everybody, then they don't have to have this conversation so we, that often. So we ICP, we create our buyer's journey. We start figuring out where we can reach our ideal customers. Are they on a product comparison site? 
like products, right? Or are they on review sites? Are they can yeah, we yeah. reach them by paid advertising one or channel? And then we send the customer's buyer's journey. What do they need? Do some experimentation on what it takes to get some micro conversions. Um, so what about now we've done some micro conversions? What what is needed after that? Do we need some nurturing or how do we start getting in in dialogue with the, with those that have shown interest? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, I think it, this really also depends on what is the uh, the average contract value of what you're chasing. Uh, so, like I know, question was at plan day uh, back in the day, and the, the average deal size there was not super big, so no. you can't necessarily afford a uh, a super skilled salesperson to chase a deal that is uh, two hundred dollars a year or whatever. Oh, it it's much more. <laughs> <laughs> But, but if you're selling nice. something that is has to like a six-digit con annual contract value, then the right solution is maybe just you know get that salesperson on this account and have him start chasing it. If you're on these like uh, lower deal sizes, you might want to automate a lot of stuff where you just continuously stay top of mind. Uh, classics could be like when they do convert the first time on a newsletter or ebook, you start having a flow of emails sent out to them. I would also uh, connect to anybody who converts uh, on LinkedIn. So once you know who they are, go in, press connect, start interacting with them there. Uh, I dream that we do a lot of this called, we call it social selling, but essentially it's just posting on LinkedIn two, three times uh, per week. And what I've noticed lately is also like, <laughs> People in, in marketing, B2B marketing, they change jobs so fast that the emails, like if you collect the email, almost, almost rather collect a private email than a business email nowadays <laughs> wow. because they change jobs so fast that, you know, that that email is useless within six months. So that's why you want to go connect with them on LinkedIn because if then there's a likelihood that if they're, they, there's a fit to your ICP, they will move on to other companies that's your ICP. So it continues to just nurture the relationship with those people to where you stay top of mind with quality pieces of content, relevant things that you Plus you will get notified that they actually did change job and for yeah. the new role at that account you're trying to to reach. At that as well. Mm -hmm. And then obviously then you keep your retargeting flow turned on as well. So they're constantly yeah, it, but at least <laughs> exposed for from. But if you're also sometimes in a direct competition with another vendor, but essentially you're just in a competition with everybody because everybody's bidding on LinkedIn to push their message in front of people. And in organizations, projects come up, and there's a limit to how many projects one organization can handle. So, sure. let's say a legal project, legal software project comes in that might stop people from buying their attribution software right now because the data people can't handle another project. So this is like, it is a fierce battle for constantly staying top of mind and being that project that is the next one that, uh, that gets but, but like you said that only two to 3% of your total addressable market is looking for solving their problem right now. The rest is going to be. A month from now, two months from now, three months from now. So nurture and and be content with the natural situation that you cannot stump up a readiness to buy if it's not there. You need to wait for it to happen. So keep a That's very true. timely perspective on on your efforts and do try to understand the people sitting on the other side that it's still only 2 or 3% at any given time. Yeah, I think here we're touching some like marketing fundamentals as well. Like it's nice to catch those that are in market right now, but you're kind of a little bit actually already a little bit late to conversation because in their mind, they've probably listed one, two, three brands that they like, which they might go directly for rather than expressing a more broader category no. search. I think popular people call it demand creation. And nowadays, um, <laughs> I've had enough. In the old days, we called it branding. <laughs> Be aware of what it, it is that I do. So, yeah, yeah. What if what it, I, it has though highlighted this component for me that 
you need to be there before they are actively buying. And the way kind of we address that uh, today at DreamData is we have this ideal customer definition. And then we've built lists of, I think it's like 1,500 or so. Now maybe it's more B2B SaaS companies in Europe and America at a certain size, which we constantly run ads towards against the marketers who work in these companies. It's not kind of a come buy our product right now. <laughs> it's more like lead magnets. Yes. Yeah. These are the problems you might have. Here's an, here's a video, blah, blah, blah. So the hope is that once that, that project move upwards, then we're present there. The same we like, and this is connected to what I call social selling. So the account that we've named our people also then continuously connect to, you have a hundred connects you can spend per week on LinkedIn. So make sure you spend them towards your ICP. And then if you continuously post stuff one, two, three, four, five times per week, then these people start to know a lot about your brand. Uh, and hopefully that will make them once that they actually are in market come to you rather than competition. So I think you're right, son. It's super important that, as I said, like start with those in market, but then be aware that the next component is to get in front of those that are most likely to be the next one that goes uh, in market. So good point about social selling and uh, the, the deal size because that determines the effort and uh, expensive resources you can throw at it. Maybe we should actually just uh, jump a little bit into that because it's, it is uh, sustainable growth. The growth is extremely important. And what that means is that in your company, you need to establish what you're willing to pay for a certain uh, business event, whether that's a demo call or it's a, a new customer. Uh, and then hopefully the activities you carry out will cost less than what you're willing to, to, to pay for a new customer. And if you find those activities, that are the activities you really should try to sustain because here you've made a calculation. I'm willing to pay 500. We're getting them at 400. So I should just keep putting more money into this uh, this project. And then sometimes you'll see projects where like, <laughs> oh, fuck, this doesn't make sense at all. So let's let's cancel these things. But it's, it's, it's boring stuff that actually makes up the, the growth engine. Who's the ICP? What is the cost per acquisition we can spend find stuff that works, sustain it, build, like continuously build on, on these things. Yeah, and also just you know, have some budget assigned for just like experimental stuff. Once you get to a level where like you have a pretty good predictable growth engine where you can just say, if I put in a thousand here, I get 10 out on the other end. That's great. But you also need to sometime, like at some point that channel will just dry out and you cannot scale it more. It will just get like super expensive to get the next extra 10 leads. So then you just need to keep experimenting on the site with some budget aside, like a 10, 15% of your total ad spend budget, just to yeah, freestyle to. on random stuff. Back in the day, I've also done my mistakes. So I just like completely shifting the budget out to the next experiment that I found interesting. And then you see the just falling flat. Uh. So that's all like, it's, it's hard earned lessons that sustain that stuff that works and don't like sh don't shift the whole budget before you're absolutely sure that it's the best decision yeah. <clears throat> start with those 10 so 15 percent the scary part about that if you do that like switch your budget over sometimes it's not immediately that it happens sometimes it's like two three months down the line and you're like oh hell no <laughs> like we should not have yeah. done that <laughs> so continuous yeah, but... improvement instead of complete re-engineering it it, it this I have not yet managed to find the silver bullet. <laughs> we we can keep looking. In the meantime, we need to do continuous improvement. Yeah. So, buyer's journey, ICP, create your buyer's journey for your ICP and really understand that because the more in-depth you go with that and really understand who in the ICP organization have what type of pains, you can speak to them, you can share content, and you can generate whatever you find by t trial and error and test, what kind of attractive information and content they would love to get for micro-conversions. And then figure out where to reach them. Paid channels, social, at what yeah, cost. At, at what cost. Um, and 
certainly always, always, always have retargeting on. And it doesn't have to be just Google. It can be LinkedIn. It can be Facebook. It can be test out what works and what doesn't. It depends on your audience. And you might be surprised even. So create your content, set up the micro conversions. And this is definitely a test, 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 test area. So you know exactly what they're looking for. What's the most desirable thing that they would love to give away that name and email address for or push the demo button or contact me. Social selling, forget it's a way not only to reach out to the customers we'd love to have, but it's also a way to keep in contact and keep nurturing and do test up the messaging on that because whatever you post can be a dead end. It's a lot of competition out there. You want to create something that motivates people to engage, right? Something to get. True, but you also need to be have the mindset of like, you know, fuck yeah. it, let's just try this so, and see what happens. Uh, else you will never post anything. So, so, Stefan, now we have this. And if there's anyone out there like me that have a frustration of Google Analytics, something about third-party cookies, and I'm not getting the data in Google Analytics I used to, Beside the fact that Google Analytics can be a little cumbersome in actually getting an overview and some insight. And then I look for data in Google AdWords, on LinkedIn, my email program. And I got I gotta make sense of all this and understand some kind of biased journey. And it's extremely hard and frustrating, is my is my opinion. So how do we deal with that? How do we get some level of attribution and what kind of attribution should we be looking for? I think, I mean, it's a good question and it depends on kind of your, the amount of resources you have in your organization. If we start from the, the low practical like side of things, then uh, first of all, think through kind of all the activities you guys are doing in your organization and think about, is it actually generating digital reflections of our activities. If our, is our salespeople just like cowboys with their own phones, just calling customers directly, then maybe we can move them into like a calling software. So it leaves a trace behind that somebody actually called this customer. Same thing if like customer success is just their Gmail inbox right now, maybe it's time for Sendesk or Intercom or another piece of uh, customer success software. There might be a lot of activities you do today that is easy to get to generate digital reflections. That would, I think that would be point one. And then the next kind of attribution thing that I would probably be looking for is asking people where they, they heard about you, uh, you know, both on sales calls, on the website, as they do their micro conversions, you can add where, how did you discover us or how did you hear about us or something like that. I did this, there's stuff you can do that it doesn't cost a lot of money that can help you understand a little bit more. Reasonable CRM system that doesn't have to cost a lot, that HubSpot is free. Uh, that might give you some ease as well, right? Yeah, to some degree, uh, definitely. Um, then maybe you want to start looking for uh, can be proxies for producing money that are not kind of the full journey, but like it's a good step in the right direction. I'm thinking really much on either somebody who books a demo or signs up to your product. And again, I'm thinking very much in terms of digital companies, but those two things, if you push them upwards, it's probably, you probably won't sell to everybody, it's, but it's a good step in the right direction. But it's also so early in the journey that that you will probably have an idea about the, like you did A or B and then suddenly more demo calls start coming in. So I like these early indicators of the activities we do because we cannot sit and wait for 192 days to see whether it worked or not. We, we need clear signals. Sure. So maybe you want to focus on these conversions, demo call or free sign up. What are the kind of what are the paths people just take to this? Is it the right kind of people that are signing up? 
and so on. Are they showing yeah, the right it, sim? It, it, that's a really sim. good point, Christian, as well. Like, look, what is this email that is coming through here? Is that good or bad? And try to understand. Maybe in the CRM, you can see this email had this uh, original source or whatever. Uh, for example, when we the problem though is that when when you get a demo booked for our website, it takes an average of four visits, and the last one or two visits are always uh, they came directly to the website. So the session captured is somebody came directly and then booked a demo. And you cannot uh, like it's hard to scale people that coming directly to your website. So you sure. need to be able to connect the like what was the first of those four visits, and there's like. There's no different ways of, of doing so, but I think the main thing is that you you start to think about that you need to own the tracking of your own website, like who's on my website and store it in a place where you can continuously get access to it. Most marketers don't con even consider that it's when they're looking in Facebook or LinkedIn or Google Analytics, it's another company who tracks their data for them and owns the data and like they can just get shut out. The data can be sampled. They, you know, more legal measures will be introduced. And then so what, no what, what do we need to consider for, for solving? So you need to set up tracking that you actually store. And, in and what, what could that be? You own. So there's, you know, there's our product dream data can do it for you, but there's a segment. There's, I think, what's it called? Yeah. Metomo, there's like several of these Google Analytics alternatives out there where you install their tracking stuff and then you make sure that it's also stored in a data warehouse that you own. Because then afterwards you can start connecting it to the CRM system, the ad platform, uh, email automation, etc. So that like if we go from like the beginners is just start leaving digital reflections behind, start asking people, where did you hear about us? And then there's the complex <laughs> setup of uh, tracking everything and like technically building buyer journeys, etc. So I wouldn't recommend people to try to do that <laughs> at home themselves. And we will not get more customers, but, but if it's important to state that it's, you know, it depends on which, in the, at which stage you're at and like, if you have 30 people in your company, it's much better to just be extremely active, do a lot of shit rather than thinking about analyzing what's working. Yeah. And then when you get to a certain maturity stage, then you can think about more advanced uh, analytics stuff. There's like a correlation between the how much you would need like the super advanced setup, like depending on how long is your sales cycle. Is it like, you know, a 9, 12, 18 month sales cycle, then you have really a big problem tracking the funnel and, and the way to becoming a customer versus like in, in companies I worked at without mentioning any specific ones, our sales cycle could be one, two months. And it was actually pretty smooth, just like dun, dun, dun. Uh, less of a problem with attribution, but I actually like the, even though it feels like, like something that we would do like early 2000s, you know, where did you hear about us? That kind of things yeah. actually does make sense because the, like Sean mentioned, the less third party cookies we have and the more social selling we do where we cannot necessarily to get, make a direct link between uh, yeah. what was posted there and them signing up through direct traffic later. We need to go back to some of those you know, ways of doing it. Especially, I love things that are kind of low effort because then like you can implement these things in like a minute. And then, then it's done and you start to have this piece of information. Yeah. Whereas like bigger projects that takes a lot of time, I typically stay away from them because it's more about, at least in the early stages, about getting a lot of shit done mm -hmm. rather than the trying to go for perfect with, with certain projects. So at the, at the early stage, we should not uh, divert ourselves with big solutions that are collecting data from, from all channels, because if it takes a while from first contact to actually converting a visitor and the prospect to a paying customer, so much time will have passed that we, there's no, we can do that later. Let's focus on what creates micro conversions, what creates conversations and, and book a demo or conversation. Begin with that. 
no big complexity there. And you can usually get that in whatever tool you use if you're using CRM system, an email system, or a social platform in terms of how many conversations you've got. So, yeah, with the even the simplest way I can put it is kind of if you're in doubt whether something works or not, <laughs> it's not working. <laughs> And then, like, if you measure in, in all your activities up against that, then you you start to become aware that, like, we set up this Google Display ad campaign with, where we're buying tens of thousands of clicks and we've seen zero more emails per month coming in. Then it's probably not <laughs> working. Or we called 100 people, none of them said yes to a call. <clears throat> well, it's not working. Yeah. Been there, done that, burned the money. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's why you can now listen to us on a podcast that for we have we have tried a lot of stuff that doesn't work. That's just how it is. That's part of the experimental side. I've discovered what uh, activities are coming in and what it delivers that we're actually generating some revenue from from what we've set up. And we'd like to now we can we have income and we have profit that can actually pay for a more uh, clean, better setup. So what is it that we can we can achieve? For example, dream data. What is, what is it that as, as marketer can actually achieve in terms of repeatable uh, revenue generated income from marketing activities? Yeah, so there's a couple of things that our customers are typically like some there's some some use cases that are typically quite interesting. Uh, if we start with like a paid marketing bucket, we when companies spend a lot of money here in B two B, they have quite typically no clue about what becomes of that money that they've spent. In B two C, they have this you know e commerce Shopify web shops that sends back an information. Now you sold a running shoe. In B two B, you buy clicks and then. Six months later, 12 months later, you see it appearing as closed one revenue in the CRM system. What we do is that we can help uh, sanity check every single click that you've bought, like go into every campaign, every keyword, etc., and say, this keyword produced pipeline, and this keyword didn't produce pipeline. And typically, customers start finding out that a lot of the things that they spend money on ever, ever ends up producing uh, revenue. So if you look at it from like kind of a, a bell curve, a normal distribu- distribution point mm. of view, it, you start to become aware about the activities that you're doing that is quite clearly not impacting revenue. And then you free up those money to, to put up and put in your pocket or in, reinvest in other stuff that like seems to... Repeat. So how do we know that a campaign did not to any revenue or had any effect in terms of touch point along the, the how can we make sure it had no effect? I'll explain a little bit the technology then because that is kind of the, the key component here then. So when we see a user for the first time and user here being just an anonymous ID, we'll record where did they come from? Uh, what have they looked at in decision when they're on the website? And where did they come from when it's from ad platforms, particularly from Google, they, it has a unique click ID, which is completely unique to that one click. And we stored in this click on this user and write it in our database. This user came anonymously from this place. Then that user might have three, four more visits to the website. And we'll just keep adding to the logbook while they remain anonymous. Once they then submit a, a form, which could be a demo call, newsletter sign up, whatever, log into the product, we get consent to reveal, or not, no, actually not reveal, but connect their known identity with their unidentified So now we know it's CERN from the Messy Grove show that actually clicked on the ad the first time and that now pushed through the demo form. And then the next loop we need to do is then to build or to sort the touches that you have with all the other touches from the Messy Growth Show all, all the way through until you become a closed one account. 
And this is kind of, this is a fundamental problem that B2B companies face is that we're se typically selling to teams or groups of people. And the ones that starts the journey is not necessarily mm. the ones that signs the contract. <clears throat> but you need to map them into the same timeline but they're actually part of the same timeline. And the ad platforms today are only looking at the, the different individuals. So spend some money, book a demo call. But you never know whether that demo call was a, an account you sold to. So this process is what we, we help automate for our clients. You bought all these clicks, which essentially uh, a cohort, and this cohort then yielded X amount of MQLs later on, sales qualified leads, and later on uh, new deals. It's a good point with the like the different people involved in the in the buying process because I I was using Dream Data one of my previous clients and I remember looking at the data and seeing like that the like what you would typically call the champion or some person that actually had the problem down on the floor would sign up uh, and then eventually you would get a like direct traffic sign up which was from the boss and that person would be connected to the closed one. Uh, deal, mm. but you had to like look at it in context and say, okay, it was actually this guy here on the floor that started yeah. the conversation, but the boss that sealed the deal. But that is really like a fundamental that you need to understand that you, the way to look to, to analyze it is you go look at the deals you won last quarter. How many people is associated to this like deal in your CRM system? And then you'll probably see at least if the salespeople are not super sloppy, you can see that three, four, five people are actually associated to one deal. And that means that your marketing, also like the way you measure it is very much impacted by this scenario. Like the CEO would never be the one that does the footwork of looking at review platforms, making the list of vendors we should consider. They might come for the very last meeting and then, okay, they're not completely stupid. I'll sign the, the contract. Uh, all right. Cool. So it's not, I don't know if that helps you kind of understand. Kind I mean, it's fair to call it the uh, cookie list tracking, right? Because we know we're using our own first party cookies now and not any third party cookies yeah, so to, we, uh, we... to track users. So we're fully GDPR compliant. We do, uh, you, we do still yeah. set cookies, but it's first party. That we have permissions. Uh, and we track in the local stores. Exactly. The whole difference is that it's you as the company who's collecting yeah. the data and not some other entity that is collecting So thereby data. we are GDPR compliant when using that. Uh, if they have accepted that you start tracking them. We don't want to do anything illegal, but there are illegal ways of setting tracking as well, but we don't do that. GDPR is like my favorite nightmare. Back to the days where you could just set cookies randomly. That was, that was good days. What you, Stefan, look, uh, consider to be a, a funnel and what our platform needs to consist of to be able to facilitate a repeatable revenue generation engine, so to speak. And a few tricks of how we can actually uh, map that and how we can track it without breaking the bank. Go easy in the in the beginning because you don't have the ability to correlate any marketing activity to revenue anyway. So find some some midpoint, some conversions, some micro conversions that you you aim for measuring against. That would be your success criteria. And once you start generating revenue, maybe you can consider some bigger solutions. But again, we touched upon this a couple of times. It has to be profitable. So we need to consider what basket size or deal size is deal size. before we and, and figure out that we are able before we start investing in bigger tools. So start small, experiment a lot uh, before you start scaling on your, your tools. Appreciate your time, cool. Stephen, and sharing your gold nuggets. Likewise, that was nice. Yeah. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Messy Growth Show. 
Check out the upcoming guests on the MessyGrowthShow.com. You can subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and YouTube. And if you do have any comments, feedbacks, or suggestions of topics that are of particular importance to you as owner or marketeer in the software or manufacturing industry, please do reach out to us on MessyGrowthShow.com. We'll see you on the next episode of the Messy Growth Show.